This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. In her latest book, The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future, Dr. Martha Biretta explores the psychological underpinnings of the mentality of white superiority in the United States and its roots beginning with the early history of European settlers on the North American continent, dating all the way back to the Jamestown colony in Virginia in the early 1600s. Dr. Biretta has more than 30 years of experience as a lecturer, consultant, and trainer for issues related to race, class, and gender, working with educators, law enforcement, and business and civic leaders. She's also author of more than a dozen nonfiction books, including A Time for Change, How White Supremacy Ideology Harms All Americans, released in June of 2021, published by Roman and Littlefield. She's also written two books for young readers and historical fiction books for adults. And she's director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. I spoke with Dr. B. Beretta last week about her latest book, The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Beretta, welcome back to the show. Well, so nice for you to have me. Thank you for the invitation. No, you're welcome. And thank you for this book. I, I you know, I was telling you, I, I enjoyed reading it. You know, and it, it's not a lighthearted book, but it's an important book, I thought. Well, thank you. For starters, I want to remind people that, you know, some of the things we're going to talk about aren't necessarily ancient history. You grew up during Jim Crow. Can yes, you reflect on that time in your life yes. and the things that you would have experienced? Yes, I uh, call myself, I am a colored girl. That's the way I grew up. I grew up for at least 20-some years. And, of course, during that time period, uh, there were Jim Crow laws and customs. So there was legal segregation. You know, the schools were segregated, libraries, the recreation. There was this total separation of blacks and, and whites, colored and whites at that time. Uh, there were also, you know, in terms of even cemeteries, you needed to be buried in, in a different cemetery. And of course, there were the colored and white entrances, water fountains. Uh, you know, if you took the train, there was a, or a bus, there was a, you know, a different waiting room. And of course, uh, you had to go into back doors if you wanted to go to a restaurant. Sometimes you could, at the store, you could not try on clothes. And uh, there was also the, the racial terrorism. Now, in Ponte Gorda, I have to say that uh, we did not experience that. We did have a KKK, but I asked some of the old timers, and I said, what do they do? <laughs> because I don't experience that. I do, however, uh, when I was 10 years of age, probably the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me as a child in terms of being a colored child was when Emmett Till was killed. That it's like a child was killed, and it wasn't like an adult being lynched. And so that, you know, our parents and the community had to kind of really love us and let us know that we could be okay and probably not to go to Mississippi. <laughs> so, mm. yes. We spoke to you on the show back in 2020 about your book that came before this one. It was called mm -hmm. A Time for Change, How White Supremacy Ideology Harms All Americans. Mm -hmm. And in it, you start with some history about how the early part of this country, before it was a country really, you know, mm -hmm. when its colonies were not race-based, but this mm -hmm. was something that was sort of implemented by those that were in power at the time, mostly after Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Yes. Can you give us the short version of that story? Because it yes. lays the groundwork for what we're talking about. Uh, let me just, uh, a little quote here to start here. This is from Lerone Bennett, Jr., who was um, in, uh, he wrote The Shaping of Black America. The race problem in America was a deliberate invention of men who systematically separated blacks and whites in order to make money. Now, one of the things that we have not done is to look at Virginia history. And I'm interested in because my father was from Virginia, so I'm fascinated with Virginia history. Before 1680, there was no classification of a person being white. You were whatever your a nationality was, or you were Christian. There was not that term at all. And so there was the, a lack of racial animosity or any hatred. People lived together, uh, worked together. And very interesting, um, when you look at, uh, I was just over here last week for the uh, Celtic Festival. It was fascinating. But especially the, the Irish and the Africans they married, they had families, and so there was not this. But 
one of the things that we don't, it's kind of been like a fairy tale in our uh, in invented history. It's like we think that everybody who came over as an indentured servant, boy, oh boy, they were just so happy to get here. However, we forget that Virginia was established by the aristocratic elite. They established a class-based society that they had known in England. That's who they were. They didn't know any better. At the time that the colony was established, England was having all kinds of social instability. There was poverty and homelessness. There was uh, lawlessness. And so actually the colonies were used as a quote-unquote dumping grounds for the unwanted people. And in terms of many of the indentured, they went under the, had the same situations as the Africans had. Many were kidnapped, and they called spirited away. Children were taken and brought over. They were thrown into the, the bottom of a ship, just like the Africans. Over 50% of the European indentured died on the way over here. Once they got here, very interesting, people don't know the story. The captain of the ship sold them to the highest bidder or the agent. Families were torn apart. The same thing was like a precedent for what was to happen to the Africans. And more than that, they were treated brutally, the same kinds of conditions. And we have this fairy tale about that. But because of that, because of their treatment, they had this multiracial rebellion, the uh, Bacon's Rebellion. So you had the European indentured, and many authors say they were actually enslaved, that the conditions were the same. So you had them, you had the Africans, you had the Native Americans. These three groups, about 10 years before, they had all uh, run away to the mountains and they had become maroons. But when this, they were just so angry about the way that they were treated, so they had the rebellion. Now, it's very interesting to note there were about 15,000 people living in the colonies. Now, nine of those thousand were considered slaves. 7,000 of those people were European Americans. Hmm. And so the real issue here is how are we going to control, because there were fewer Africans, they were going economically, it's going to be better to bring the Africans because they would always be enslaved. And so... What can we do? What can we do so that we can control black bodies and white minds? When we think about the people who came over, people do not leave their countries except for economic or for political reasons. The people who came were not doing well. They didn't own land. They were of the lower class, many considered to be inferiors. So you have then this group, this multiracial group, and the people in power have to figure out a way to preserve their power. Remember now, there are more Europeans than there are even Africans. They are the group that really has to be controlled, all right? And so what do, what do, what do the uh, elite do? Aha, let's establish this line, and they established whiteness. And if you think about people, uh, generations, whose family had been serfs, and they finally come to a place, they are inferiors in Europe. They can't own land. And you tell them, now you are on top. Now, because of that, even though materially, economically, they didn't gain that much, they were still, but psychologically, they were on top. Think about a person a generation who's learned from their grandparents that they were serfs. Finally, they are superior. Now, because of using skin color, they are the same as the elites in a way. They can identify in the same way because, mm, you know, he may be an elite, but we're both white. And so that division was caused so that the elites could maintain power. And basically, it was used initially to control the common white man. And through the years, it has been reinforced because this whole thing had to develop with stereotypes of the, of the blacks. Mm. And so it's really, when you look at it, 
what whiteness is, is what black is not. You have to have those two, though. And so this uh, might, many people, you know, one of the things I suggest is to go back and read Virginia history, not just what you got in your, your textbook, but go and look at Virginia history because you will see what really happened there, and especially after their Bacon's Rebellion. They had to start, you know, what they would do then is to separate families you know, this the code, you know, if a, a, an European indentured woman would have a baby for an African, she could be enslaved. So all of these rules came to really keep the power. But what they did was to erase class consciousness. They created another hierarchy based upon race, hmm. and that's been used for almost 400 years now. And so the title of the book is The Promise of Whiteness. Can you yes. explain, like— I guess your premise is, is that that psychological device that was used still exists in our culture all these years later. Yes, it does, because two reasons. It was conditioned, okay? As soon as this division, whiteness was created, then in order to help the new whites, you had then to do the negative stereotypes about the blacks. And so all of this, from the churches everywhere, all of these stereotypes were put out there. And so those designated as white, hmm, we're we're really at at a better place. The basic thing, though, because their physical and material, the economic conditions really did not change that much. At some point, even during that, they were denied the right to vote, even though they, they were free, you know, from that. But what the major thing was psychological, the fact that I am no longer on the bottom. I am a superior. And the whole thing had to do with equality. There's nobody equal to you now. Now, in terms of this this whole thing, and I'm going to go, you ask about the, the promise. I'm going to go through some of the promises. Sure, sure. The first promise was place, okay? So when you look at the racial hierarchy, white is at the top of the hierarchy. Place is very important. And one of the things that whiteness provided, you know, was this psychological fact that I am at the the top, the epitome. And one of the worst things that a black could do was to get out of their place, to even imagine that they could be in the same place. So all through my growing up, I heard about place and upperly blacks who got out of their place. So the whole thing about place, it provides the fact that it psychologically, you are at the top. You are superior, okay? Now, the second one, of course, had to do with privilege. And privilege said, "Mm, there will not be equal access. As a person in the white place, you will have the access to opportunities, and you will have, you know, it's either social, political, or economic opportunities. In your place, you will have this privilege, you know, you Uh, will have the right jobs. Any kinds of opportunities will come to you. And this whole division of labor, there would be basically white jobs and colored jobs. And in my growing up in Jim Crow, those were the kinds of things that did happen. Now, the power thing is really a psychological boost. I think it's probably the most seductive thing about it was that a person designated as white really had physical control over a black. The power to, let's say, if uh, a black man, he could be dressed in a suit walking down a sidewalk. He, a white man, could have the power to make him get off of the sidewalk. And just think about the signs that are around. Hmm, colored and white. Hmm, I have the power to go in someplace where he cannot. So that whole power thing was very, that personal power and, of course, the collective power. Now, the protection, again, and, you know, it comes up for me for Emmett Till. Blacks could be, or colored at that time, could be harmed. Their homes could be burned. They could be lynched. But 
designate as white. There was protection. Courts did not charge you with the crime. It was not a crime to hurt a colored person because they probably deserved it, like they said about little 14-year-old Emmett Till. Well, he deserved that. And that whole, those four things, so the place was number one. Don't get out of your place. This is my place. Secondly, it's I have the privilege and the access. Thirdly, I've got some personal power. And fourth, that protection. Those were the four promises. Now, those promises, though, did bind whites as well. And if one uh, decided that they wanted to break away from that, uh, just, you know, I look at right now. I know people who don't get invited to dinner anymore or to drinks or anything like that. But this book is dedicated to some people who did break the promise. And I think we know what happened to them. It is dedicated to freedom fighters. John Brown, you know, he was... Uh, Eventually, he was, what, lynched, I guess. Uh, Viola Leozo, remember the housewife? Yes, yeah, she, she, uh, she broke away. She, the contract, she didn't follow the contract. Reverend James Ribb, he was killed, was beaten to death because he did not stay with the contract of whiteness. Andrew Goodman and Michael Swerner, all of these people who did not stay with that contract because this was part of the whiteness. You are to protect it. You are not to let social equality occur in any kind of way. And so while it, you know, the, the signs were colored white, whatever, it bound whites as well. And I think that's another thing that many times whites don't understand, is the ruling that also took away some of their freedom. Suppose you did want to have uh, colored friends. Suppose you did want them to walk into the front door of your house and somebody saw that happening. You could be ostracized. Mm. And so those rules, while they were definitely pointed towards colored, also did bind whites. And in Florida, there was very interesting. Um, Florida had some of the, the harshest Jim Crow laws. And, you know, one of them, actually, if you saw a white and a colored together, and didn't matter if the man or the woman or whatever, you could turn that person in and get a fine and get the money for it. So both sides, of course, colored got it worse. I'm not going to say the color didn't get it worse, but those laws also did take away some of the freedom of whites. You introduced the idea of racially induced dissonance oh, in this yes. book. Can you explain what you mean by that? All right. Racially induced dissonance. All right. When we talk about uh, dissonance in general, cognitive dissonance, you know, uh, I may have some beliefs that I've had, and then this new belief is brought in, and I have to, it's uncomfortable because I believe this, and here you are introducing something else. Well, a racially induced uh, dissonance is caused when I have this stereotypical belief or image of colored people, and then I look, and there is a realistic refutation of that myth. It's like I, you can see with your own eyes evidence that the myth is incorrect. Yes, you see with your own eyes. And so there's this, this you know, this can't be. And actually, I, I talk about the, 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 uh, the stages of it, okay? The first stage is like this confusion. And let's say, uh, I'll use, um, you know, Tulsa as, a, as an example. Let's say that um, somebody is taking their, their employee or colored employee home, and the person is riding through the neighborhood. And maybe their employee may not have a big brick house, but he sees these others, and there's confusion and conflict. Yeah, but this is supposed to be little Africa. It's supposed to be a colored neighborhood. You know, but, but, but they're irresponsible, and they don't know how to have houses, and they're lazy. H how can they have these houses? So the first one is this, this confusion and conflict because of a stereotype, years and years of conditioning. Now, secondly, all right, I go by and I see these houses, and then— and you're talking I, about houses in Tulsa, in Greenwood, yes, where, in where Greenwood. it was very successful African-American community. Right. right. Now, let me say this. Uh, 
and I will mention this now, during Jim Crow, the other thing that we do not know, and maybe before the end of this, I'll talk about some of the lessons that I learned in Jim in, during Jim Crow. There were over 189 vibrant business districts in America. In fact, there were 21 in Florida. Fort Myers was one of them, and so was Ponta Gorda. Okay, so there were African-Americans who did have brick homes other places as well, but I'm just using Tulsa. So I go, and so first is confusion because this can't be happening because he's colored. But then secondly, oh, but I'm white. And then you get this personal comparison. I'm white, and he's colored, and he has more than I have. Okay, and it starts, it's personal now. It's not the group, it's me and him. Then we get this emotional response, and it is usually an irrational envy, okay? Because, you know, when you're comparing people and you're looking at this colored person, and he might be higher than you, so this response. Now, what usually happens, it's irresponsible, it's, you know, irrational, is that either individually or collectively, there is a restoration of my identity, I may tell my friends, and we decide, well, we're going to let those coloreds know, you know, this, you know, this, we can't have this. Or individually, I may decide, like I was mentioning before, I may see this colored, and I make him get off the sidewalk. Well, I'll fix you. And I get that my restored sense of superiority back. And so this dissonance is caused because of the realistic the fact that with your own eyes, you can see that these are myths, that they're lies, and that colored, all these things you said about coloreds, you know, that, that coloreds were dependent. They were childlike. They needed whites to show them what to do. And you go into Tulsa, well, no white person did that for them. You mean he had the thought he could do that for himself? And so that's what happens with this dissonance. It is when the, the real picture of who colored people are are then balanced with the stereotype, this racially induced dissonance occurs. And what, what is the result of that dissonance, would you say? Usually violence. Uh, that is the usual violence. Which is it's, how it played out in Tulsa, yes, as we know. Yes, uh, because, you know, the... Uh, in the, in the talking about it, you know, you tell your friends and that kind of thing. Now, the one of the other things that uh, with this dissonance uh, is, you know, the lynching that comes. Okay, that uh, that was, you know, never punished. But uh, some of the the uh, historians have said, you know, like you could be in a small town, and you kind of get a feel that these coloreds are talking or these coloreds are doing this, and in order to bring them back to their place. Somebody gets lynched. Usually, you know, you know the story that's told. Some white woman is whatever, but it all, Mike, it all comes back to staying in their place. And so, when a person who is in this sees a colored person out of their place in any way, especially having more, remember, privilege. I'm supposed to have all of the opportunities. I'm supposed to be at the economic top. And then when I see this. Violence is usually the result. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Dr. Martha Beretta is an author and lecturer and director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. We're talking about her latest book, The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future. In it, she explores the psychological foundations and history of white supremacy in the United States. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic or any of our episodes, just use WGCU social media, find us on Facebook, and we're on Twitter. Um, you know, when reading through your book, um, I was reminded of the mentality of the bully. You know, and as we grow up, we see bullies as people who are just mean. But then you get a little wiser and you realize that oftentimes bullies are, are driven by fear mm -hmm. that they may not even recognize within themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and then as a, a secondary part of that is people who are friends with bullies will often <laughs> pretend like they're not bullies or defend their actions because they don't want to be part of the out group and they're the in group. Is there a metaphor there for, for um, white supremacy? I would think so. Um, the fact that th there is this continuous 
fear. And this fear, if you look at some of the older, like Dollard, some of the older writers who wrote in the 50s or in the 40s, there's just been this constant fear of the loss of place. Okay? And so with this... And because you're breaking the promise yes, of whiteness. Right. And so if you've got this fear, yes, one of the ways to come back, to get back to that, that point of restoration, of identity, is then to put somebody else down so that you can again feel superior. So it is a bullying. It's like, I don't feel good about myself. I have these fears. I'm anxious. Therefore, if I can make you lower than me, because, you know, bully makes you cower, if I can make you cower, then I can feel good about myself again. And so that's how it's used. Um, another thing you, you detail is how, you know, starting in the 50s with Brown versus Board of Education, the federal government started becoming involved in trying to, to establish systems that can be more fair, more equal. Mm-hmm. And, and those were seen, whether consciously or unconsciously, as threats by people who have identified with this promise of whiteness that they were going to have stuff taken away from them, basically. And so that's why there was so much pushback to the civil rights movement. Is that an accurate assessment? Yes, it is. Uh, And I remember that um, Jim Crow came after Reconstruction, those few years where African-Americans could vote, could, you know, hold office. And so, yes, this, you know, know, 1954, and if you think about all the pushback, you know, of, of what the school districts did not to have integration, because that was putting equality in that. That was saying, oh, those colored kids can come into my white school and think they're equals there. And so all of that, we, first of all, we had 54, all right? And that, you know, the Brown versus, that started. Then, my goodness, we had 64, the Civil Rights Act. And, okay, if that's not enough, then we're going to let them vote. Voting says that you are an equal American citizen. Can you imagine what voting rights did? You, they are now equal to me. They can go and cast a vote like me, or they can run for office. And then, not only that, after that, oh, my gosh, now they can actually come and live in my neighborhood, the, the uh, housing act. So we had all of these acts that started to push away this promise, this promise, this promise, and just little by little. And because of the, the conditioning that coloreds were never to be your equals, when this started happening, it was like a zero-sum game. If they get this right, it's taken away from me. It wasn't really taken away. It was just trying to live out the American ideals. But it was not seen as that. Okay, you can vote. That's my right. I'm supposed to be the only one who can vote. Oh, he can move in my neighborhood. Oh, no, no, no. That's I'm, I'm supposed to be there. So all of these things, all of these laws started to tear away at this whole concept of the promise of whiteness, what you're supposed to be promised by whiteness. And then you also talk about how, you know, especially since maybe the 80s, um, you know, our economy has changed in such a way that, you know, jobs have been shipped overseas and uh, demographics have shifted in this country to the point where, you know, we are, you know, we're not too far off from, you know, people who have white skin being minorities in terms of population. And so these also threaten that same dynamic. Uh, yes, this whole globalization. You know, there was a time uh, and the, the deindustrialization of, you know, what happened in the Midwest and mm-hmm. like that. There was a time be, because of, of the code of whiteness and the promise of whiteness that a, a white man, you know, the grandfather could have the job in the factory, pass it on to his son, his grandson. And they were guaranteed. These were guarantees. You know, even like uh, with the... Um, the Social Security Act, those kinds of things, you know, like the the, the maids and whatnot were not covered in that. The uh, GI Bill didn't, you know, colored men did not get those same benefits. So now it's not only you've got these laws 
that are taking away my place, but now my jobs. And here I am. And, you know, actually, think about it now. When you think about this whole thing of white superiority, think about white superiority jobs going over to those brown people or those yellow people who are inferior. And so that whole thing has really turned things upside down, is what's happened to the economy. Uh, What some of the the newer research has shown is that especially middle-aged white men are really feeling victimized by this. And, And some of the authors say that a lot of the use of the opioids, the kinds of things that are happening now and these suicides, is because of this the world that they knew is not the same world. They're not guaranteed anymore. You have fewer young white men going to college. Well, they didn't have to go. They could just go into a job. So all of these things are are beating down. And then the browning of America, okay? What will happen here? One of the fears, oh, my God, America will no longer be a white country, okay? One of the fears in Obama, when this happened with Obama, we, we got the, uh, the, uh, the pushback because way back, and I'm talking about back since Reconstruction, and one of the things that happened then is that blacks will take over America. Okay, you got this black president. You know, he actually, he's half white. He's not all black, but that one drop thing. Uh, they're going to take over. You've got more of these uh, colored people who are in offices, or black people now they're called, you know, in the office we're called. And so you've got the laws. You've got the economic situation. And now you have what's happening, you know, politically here. And finally, you've got, oh, my goodness, all of these people who are coming here, they are going to be in control of us. This whole fear of replacement, that I will be replaced. So not, you know, I will lose my job. My child will not be able to get their spot to go to college. All of this thing, I won't have the kind of power that I've had before. I will be replaced by these people. And it is, right now, it is, it's a major fear. There's a lot of anxiety about that. So the promise of whiteness was instilled early on in this country's history, and you would say it still is an undercurrent psychologically in our country. Um, Is it being actively pushed today, would you say? Or is it still just a psychological undercurrent that manifests in people who feel threatened? I would say in some ways um, it is being pushed out there any time we – the fears, any kinds of, um, you know, like the code words or anything like that are, that are used, you know, when all of that kind of brings up, you know, like you know, the news, you know, if you, you, you watch the news and, and one of the things you, you hear about the, uh, the immigrants or whatnot, and if you are, if you have that fear that, oh, my God, look how many of them are coming, there are going to be more of them than us. So I think actually still the conditioning is still taking place. It is now more coded, but the conditioning is still taking place. What do you say to people who say progress has been made and that maybe you're making too much of this? Uh, Progress, yes, has been made. But one of the things that uh, I personally am looking at as as I – and may, may I mention something that I'm going to be doing Sure. Uh, if uh, I am doing a, a set of essays called Reflections of a Colored Girl, and they're on mere, M-E-R, dot com, and each month on the 26th of the month, I'm doing that. One of the things that as I look at this, what we see now, and some people might disagree with me, but as I look around and I read the stats about what is happening with um, the economic conditions of many black people, we have a lot of individual benefits. You know, you've got the billionaires, the millionaires. But as a group, 
we are, right now, it looks like many of us are far behind. Individuals have been very successful. Yes, my kids were able to go to Ivy League schools. In, individuals that are people of color, you're saying? Yeah, of people yes. of color. Yes. Individuals that are people of color. Yes. So uh, one of the things, though, um, and I, I've just been looking at this because of the work that, I, that I've done in schools and whatnot. I, I did uh, disparity in discipline and disparity in achievement. And I have, have come to 1954 was a critical decision. Okay, and schools, uh, you know, after that, colored children could go to white schools. One of the things, though, because of the conditioning process, what should have occurred, and this is Martha Beretta, what should have occurred before any colored child was sent to a white school was that the narrative in the heads of those teachers was changed. That is what, with all of our laws, we have not changed the narrative. And you asked me about solutions. How do we do this? One, we have to teach accurate history. We have to start with Virginia Colony. We have to start with how whiteness came about. We have to start with how we were conditioned through stereotypes of blacks. We have to have these, what I would like to see, and I don't know if it will come in my lifetime, we need our public officials and our public institutions to stand and say the myth of white superiority and black inferiority, it is a myth. We need a leader to say that. And then on an individual basis, whites who really are tied to that and you think about it, hmm, I really, I, I feel, you know, my identity is more white than German, you know, whatever, whatever it is, uh, to, to kind of examine that. But we have to tell true history, and I don't mean just starting with the Civil Rights Movement. We need to start at the beginning of American history. And if we do that, if people understand, if people understand that the elites created whiteness to control at that time white minds but black bodies I think we could think differently in terms of the history issue that you just talked about what are your thoughts on this um, AP african-american history class ban that's been playing out in the news here in Florida I have uh, probably two opinions <laughs> one I, I took a look at it at the at the curriculum and I, I am concerned um, that the whole issue, the, the queer gay issue, is being infused with black issue. And of course, that gives ammunition to people who do not want to teach African-American history. And the course was called African-American Studies, not history. Look at some of the other courses. They are actually history courses. Hmm. And so I think it's when we talk about the, and I am not homophobic by any means. People can, you know, do whatever, feel the way they want to feel, sleep with who they want to, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. But I think we are, what we're doing to black history when we infuse that is, first of all, that history, because there is a history. I think we could, if we want to have a course, we could have a course on how gay people are treated in this country. That could be an AP course. There, there have been demonstrations, all kinds of things. There have been movements, okay? But I think it dilutes African-American history. And more than that, it allows people who do not want it taught to have an excuse for not teaching it. Now, but secondly, I look at some of the uh, authors, you're like, Bell Hooks, She's a major author. So some of the, the, you know, Robin Kelly, I look at some of the authors who are supposed to be banned, and I think, mm, that, that quite doesn't seem right, that you can't, uh, as an African-American author, I am sure every book that I wrote would be banned. <laughs> because, and I have to tell you this, you know, I did this work, Mike, for 30 years, and 
probably now the work that I did, because I just saw that, you know, we're not going to be able to do diversity and equity and all that, would probably be CRT. What I did in classrooms was a teacher, because they had not, they had not been given or helped to find a new narrative and the narrative of colored intellectual inferiority. I worked with them helping them to raise expectations for these kids. Probably now that would be considered CRT. But that is simply sensitivity. That is really helping teachers to teach all students well. I, I wanted them to be excellent teachers. When I, you know, did a little side work I down in after I was married and had baby wanted to go back to work. I did some work down in uh, Homestead. I worked with the Mexican migrants. I wanted to be good. So I wanted to know how to teach them best. So my whole thing about sensitivity in terms of diversity is being excellent. It's not about making people feel bad or feel good. It's about being the best you can be. And I think you have to know the population that you're working with, you have to know their communication styles, their learning styles, and that I do not see as CRT. So as I said, everything I've written is, for, you know, my first book I wrote was uh, Cultures in Conflict about the uh, racial discrimination, uh, racial disparity in discipline. I wrote about culture. And God, I sure know that that is CRT. Mm-hmm. But sensitivity, being excellent, just being, having that concept of human completeness is not CRT. Human completeness is empathy, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's being compassionate. It's being able to see individuals rather than just a mass of people. Being able, yes, to see that person as a human being. And of course, not feeling about yourself based upon some stereotype. So, you know, it's um, yes, this this whole thing. I, I don't. I understand that. Um, I guess what the uh, College Board did was a lot of the authors, and I, I find that while I find that the part, uh, the confusion, you know, adding the um, the gay you know, the queer stuff, too, and making it African-American history. I have a problem with that. But I also have a problem with taking authors who are excellent authors out of the curriculum as well. I want to reintroduce my guest. Dr. Martha Beretta is an author and lecturer. She's director of the Blanchard House Museum of African-American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. We're talking about her latest book, The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future. Um, we've, uh, we've got about 10 minutes left. I just wanted to be uh, clear about something you say in your book. You say this book is not about white people, but rather the consciousness of those attached to the social construction of whiteness. And I want you to reflect on that, but also, you know, The book's just new. It's barely Mm -hmm. come out. Um, Have you gotten any pushback? I'm wondering if, you know, if some people might read this or even see the title and then just have a knee-jerk reaction to it. They they, uh, possibly might. And other people who reviewed it for me felt I got very good uh, reviews from folks who read the manuscript. But, yes, I could see that. Um, You know, uh, because it, it might seem like it's picking on white people. And it's not because every see that's the thing every and you talk about the conscious or you know that whole aspect every person who has white skin does not believe in white superiority okay so I am talking about consciousness now there are people who probably are kind of uh, in my first book that blind you know that blind uh, whiteness but um, basically. Um, and that, let me say this to Mike. This is one of the things uh, that I am, that bothers me about not teaching African American history. You see, if you teach accurate American history, we know that every white was not a white supremacist. If you never teach it, then you never let white kids know that there are other ways of thinking about things. You don't have to be into white superiority. You know, you, the, the authors who've written. And so um, it is about a consciousness, and it's, it's about uh, 
you know, if you, if you, you know, seeing this promise, and if you read the book, The Promise, and just take a look at those areas and say, hmm, how does that impact me? Then I think people would say, hmm, let me back off from this a little. Uh, one of the things uh, that I've done in, in conversations on race is to have the members of the group, and these were basically uh, people who were designated as, as white, to look at their forefathers and their ancestors who came here and how they identified themselves. And there are people who identify themselves not as white, but, oh, I'm Jewish. Oh, one close friend says, oh, I'm a coal miner's daughter. That's, that's my, you know, or uh, I'm Italian. So every person designated as white does not necessarily attach to that. You mentioned human completeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we wrap up here, um, let's talk about you know what you see as possible solutions. This you know it, it feels like um, you know we have some issues that almost seem intractable, but uh, we can't believe that because we have to be able to move forward. What do you see as ways to move forward? As I said before, we have to teach accurate history. I mean American history. Okay, so let let's let's take that African American history. We need to teach accurate American history, which needs we start with the colonies, okay, start with Virginia. And again, as I said, we need our leaders. You know, if you really believe, if you're a real patriot and you really believe in America and you want the best for America, you don't want you don't lose anybody. You want everybody to be a part of it because everybody can give to make this country great. And so uh, I, I would love to see our leaders actually stand on this and somebody to say, look, this, this white superiority in black and brown inferiority, you know, that's a myth. Let's, it's been in our heads for 300 years. Let's grow up as a country. And I think that's what has to happen. We have to have a new narrative as a country. We are going to have a multiracial country. And so we need a new narrative about what happens in a multiracial country, that we have all of these minds, let's take, let's use it all. That's what has to happen. You know, um, you know, I have a daughter, she's 17, you know, she's grown up in a world where they're connected with people everywhere. Um, I'd like to think that they see the world differently than we do. They don't think somebody who lives on the other side of the world is the other because they live somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily think that somebody who looks different than them is the other either because they've been raised differently. Do you see hope in the future from the younger generations that are coming up? I I do, um, but I am a little concerned about all the conversations that are out there now. I am concerned that, uh, and I actually, I, I had a, a teacher, a uh, um, European-American teacher just last week at a, at a um, luncheon say to me that a, a um, black student came up to her and said, you're white and you're racist. And so I said, how did you handle that? And she says, well, I didn't. I didn't want to get into it. I said, no, I go back to him and say, how would you like to be judged by the color of your skin? And start a conversation with him. Because what I'm hearing, see, what I'm hearing in news and everything is like if we talk about these issues, black children are going to feel like they are oppressed and white children are going to feel like they're oppressors. And, you know, when I do the workshop sometimes, I, I will say, is anybody in this workshop born uh, in 1680? And of course they laugh. And I say, then you don't have to bear any blame and shame for then. Now is when we start to change. And so this whole thing that if we talk about it, poor little white children will will need therapy. Black children will do whatever. I, you know, I just think that children are probably stronger than we think they are, and they could handle it. And like your daughter, they can think. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to stop critical thinking. If you put something there, let them think, let them say, let them choose. And so what we're doing is stopping that. Hmm. And I think we, we really have to back off from telling the truth. We have, for almost 400 years, been living under uh, 
a history that's that's not true, and we we need to just be honest with ourselves. And I think a, a true patriot would want what's best for this country. You see, Mike, this is something happened in 1680. Why are we still dealing with race? Why are we still as a nation? Why haven't we dealt with this? Yes, we passed laws, but the narrative, see, that's the key here. The narrative that impacts the emotions of people, their belonging, their identity, that's what we have to correct. Um, to close the show, can you read those two paragraphs that I pointed out? I uh, think page, it was on page, uh, page 78. It's, the, page it's basically seven. the last two paragraphs of the book before the conclusion. Okay. Oh, yes, about the laws here. Laws have created the appearance of equality, but narrative, that is the essence of the promise of whiteness remains. That narrative remains. The only way to heal the soul of America is to create a new narrative based upon human truth rather than mythology. In the 21st century, it is time to release the promise of whiteness that insisted upon inequality for some Americans and to make a new promise, one that provides equal access and opportunity for all Americans. Developing a strong domestic economy in which as many inputs as possible are sourced domestically is the key. When all segments of our population, despite race or class, urban or rural, experience a standard of living that every American deserves, irrational emotional needs and the fears of others will no longer have a place in American consciousness and we will become the great society we desire and are destined to become. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Martha Buretta, is an author, lecturer, and director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. We've been discussing her new book, The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future. Dr. Buretta, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this you know, heavy topic, but important one. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. You can find a link to her latest book and her previous book, A Time for Change, How White Supremacy Ideology Harms All Americans, which we talked with her about on this show back in 2021, on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.